I thought that number one would surely be me. I thought I could be what I wanted to be. I thought that I could build on life-shifting sand, but I can't even walk without you holding my I could do a lot on my own. I thought, I thought I could make it all alone. I thought, I thought of myself as a mighty big man but I can't even walk without you holding my hand Lord I can't even walk without you holding Every day at school, I actually have to wear something that looks just like this uh, lapel mic uh, for one of my history classes where I have a seventh grader who wears hearing aids and it's connected wirelessly to a wireless microphone that I wear on my tie for that class each day. Um, and it's good to have this back again this morning. Last week, we were without it. And I appreciate, again, all, all the work that Bill and Rick do for, for our sound system and, and the music and the, the songs this morning that were sung both for the special and, and for the hymns, how much I appreciate that and how in, in many ways they're, they're appropriate to the message this morning, almost as if uh, Bill, and perhaps he did, look at ahead since we've been preaching, since I've been preaching through First Thessalonians and coming now to this passage of First uh, Thessalonians chapter two, verses 13 through 20, and the encouragement that we see, encouragement in a time of suffering and concern in this passage. 
and uh, really the victory that we have in Jesus, you know, the Lord's hiding us um, in the shelter, sheltering us and holding our hand and then uh, softly and tenderly calling to us just the, the music this morning and how that, that does go along in many ways with this message. Do you often feel in need of encouragement at times in your life, times of suffering, times of concern? The Thessalonian church found themselves in such a place in their lives with their church when Paul wrote this letter. Now this letter, this first epistle to Thessalonians, although at the time, at this time in the New Testament, dates and such were not as important as we make them out to be today to those who were writing the New Testament epistles and books of the New Testament and those who were receiving them. But from what we know of based on the historical events mentioned in the different books of the New Testament, it seems that 1 Thessalonians is the first letter, the first epistle that Paul writes. And he writes it at a time when he is in the city of Corinth, waiting, um, he had been waiting for Silas and Timothy to return. He had been driven there by some persecution and was waiting to hear from them from Thessalonica, where he had established this church among the Thessalonians in the region of Macedonia, having been called specifically there by God through a vision to come over to Macedonia and help them. Paul could personally identify, we know that Paul was a tent maker with the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, as they, as the chief industry at that time was making a particular type of cloth that would have been used by Paul. So he may have gotten to know a few people just related to his trade as he was bivocational. And he mentions that even on our last message two weeks ago. Last week, it took a break from First Thessalonians uh, to bring a message that had spoken to me 15 years ago at the time of September 11th. And this, this morning, we're coming back after that one week break last Sunday, coming back to our series in First Thessalonians that we began a few weeks ago and had two sermons so far from the book of First Thessalonians. Let's read this passage together and then I'll open in prayer for the message. Looking at First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 20, where we see three points found to encourage believers to endure suffering and conquer worry. 1 Thessalonians 13, well, 2, 13 through 20. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. 
and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. For we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. And this morning, the three points of encouragement that I want to look at this morning. First, to thanking God for the suffering, thanking God for the, the, those who are, go, who, enduring, who are enduring that suffering as a result of the persecution of the churches of God. Thanking God for their following God, which was the cause of the persecution. And second, we'll look at understanding the nature of our persecutors, the, na the nature of persecutors. And third, we'll look at not being discouraged by the absence of loved ones in Christ. Not being discouraged by the absence of loved ones in Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for everyone who is here this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this epistle inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded through Paul to the Thessalonians, but also for our benefit today. I pray that you would encourage us through this message, through this passage in Scripture, and Lord, through the sermon this morning from it. And I pray that this would be your word and that all would be able to hear these words this morning and be encouraged. And that we'd have a greater appreciation for those who suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. And that we'd remember them and bring prayer for them. And that we would be prepared, in any, even in any small way, that we might suffer persecution for the cause of Christ in this life. That we'd be faithful and ready to endure that and to be encouraged from your word this morning regarding such persecution. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the first point of encouragement that we find in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13-20, we find in verses 13-14. through 14. And this first point is to thank God. Thank God for the suffering or for those who endure suffering, for following God, for following Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 13. For this cause... Also, we thank God without ceasing. So thanking God without ceasing. That no matter what happens in our life, we're still thanking God. Even when persecution arises, we're still thanking God. And the reason that is given for thanking God here in verse 13 is because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, 
which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which were in Judea, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Before we go on to talk about that second point describing persecutors, let's look at thanking God and the reason here for it. Notice the major part here of Paul's thanksgiving to God is for following the word of God, for receiving the word of God. Notice the word received is used twice in verse 13. Because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men. Notice we had the word English word, received twice. In the original language, it's actually two separate words with such meanings that bring, bring us to use the word re, English word received in the King, Old King James Version for both of those words. The first time the word received is used in verse 13, it refers to taking to oneself. To take to oneself is what it literally means. And in the context, what it means is that the Thessalonians took the words that Paul and his companions gave them, their preaching, their preaching of the gospel. They took those words and they received them. They heard them, they listened, and they applied them to their lives. They heard the gospel and believed it. They heard the teachings that were preached to them and applied them to their lives. That is what that word received means, the first word received in verse 13. So Paul is thanking God that they received the preaching of the gospel. They put their faith in the gospel for salvation and furthermore began the ministry of a church here in Thessalonica. That is referred to by the first word, received. The second time that receive is used in this verse, notice, when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men. The second time received is used here, ye received it not as the word of men. It literally means to receive as in receiving a guest, entertaining someone, or welcoming with open arms a true friend. So this word, the second word for receive, actually has more of a commitment than the first word, which means to listen, to apply, the words that they received, they listened to the word, they applied it. That's what the first word received refers to. This second word received has more of a responsive attitude to God's word, to God's teaching, meaning they embraced it. They received it as one would receive a guest or a friend. They welcomed it. And it's two different words in the original language. With, so first they listened to God's word and applied it, and then they embraced it, they embodied it. So you received it not as the word of men. So they welcomed it, you could say in the second, second use of received, you could say, you could read it this way. When ye listened and applied the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye welcomed it, not as the word of men. You could read it that way. But as it is in truth, 
the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. You also notice here another important term, this verse, is the, is the term word, the English word, the English term, I should say, word, is used three times here. You received the word of God, which ye heard of us. You received it not as the word of men, so that's a second use of word, but as in truth, the word of God. The first time word is used here, he's referring to the spoken word of God, the gospel that is being preached verbally, that's pre being preached um, by the mouths of Paul and Silas and Timothy to the Thessalonians. So they're hearing that word that is preached and it's being equated not with the word of men. So in other words, it's not just human words, even though human people are speaking that word. And this is the way it should be with any sermon, is the sermon should be preaching not the opinions and philosophies of men, but the words of God, when it is done the way it is meant to be. And so Paul and Silas, and Timothy, when they preached the gospel, it was God's words. It, weren't, it wasn't their own ideas or inventions or opinions. It was from God, the, the message that God gave them to deliver to the Thessalonians. And they received it, not as human words, but as from God. Paul and Silas and Timothy were merely the human instruments transporting, transferring that message, those words of God, to the Thessalonians. And that's how they received it. And when we listen to preaching, if it is preaching from the Word of God, hopefully we are receiving it, digesting it, that we're taking it in, listening in such a way that we're looking at it as what is God speaking to me concerning? You know, what is the message God is bringing to me personally this morning? Are we receiving it? Are we welcoming it into our lives as God's Word? And then finally, but as in truth, the word of God, which effectively works also believe. The third time the word, the term word is used here in this verse, refers to when we listen to and apply God's word through preaching. And it's not just the words of man, opinions, philosophies of man, ideas of man, but it's really God's message. It's God's word. When those two things happen, those first two terms for word, then the third term for word, the effectiveness, the results of the word, which means it's going to give us a power, it's going to have an impact, it's going to have an influence on our lives. It worketh, it worketh also in you that believe. This refers to, this should bring about Paul's words here in this passage specifically are going to bring about a change in the perspective of the Thessalonians. It's going to encourage them. It's going to lift them up. When we refer to the first time they received his word, as is mentioned in verse 13, the effectiveness, the effects, the work that was accomplished was the salvation of those who heard received and welcomed Paul's word as the word of God. And the effect was that they were saved. 
And what is so sad today is often in churches, the Word of God can be preached and people can hear it, but not receive it, welcome it into their lives to the point where they put their faith in the gospel and are saved. People can grow up hearing, preaching, and never put their faith in personally in Jesus Christ for their salvation. That is the first effect of the word that, that needs to happen, the first effect that Paul is praising the Thessalonians for, that when they heard his preaching, and that of his companions, they received it as the word of God. They put their faith in the gospel and were saved. And the church began there at Thessalonica. And then as they receive his word by this epistle, they're going to be encouraged. It's going to make a difference in their lives. And so much so that Paul will follow this letter up with a second letter of Thessalonians to clarify some of the things that they were receiving, welcoming from him in the first letter, and some things that they misunderstood in 1 Thessalonians, and following up in some of the instructions that he gave that were followed, and saying, okay, now that that's been done, now this. And so the Thessalonians, Paul is very grateful to the good example of receiving preaching, to receiving the gospel as God's word, and having that work in their lives, having that make a difference in their lives. The power of God through his word being evident by the establishment of this church of Thessalonica. So much so that if they had just accepted Paul's words and been convinced by his words, then if it had only been an intellectual receiving of Paul's word rather than the effectual working of God and his word in their lives, then they would not have been willing to remain in their faith through the persecution that they endured. If you only are convinced by the words of a man, you can be convinced that, yes, I believe that, but then someone else might be able to come and convince you of the opposite. And we see this so much today, tragically, that some young people will grow up in church or Christian homes and hear the word of God preached and applied through the teachings of their parents or Sunday school or church. And then they go to secular university and they hear the words of their professors and they're convinced otherwise and change their minds. And that means that they did not receive the words as the of the preaching and the teaching as the words of God, but rather they said, oh yes, my parents believe this, so I'm going to believe this. My pastor believes this and, and taught this, so I'm going, to, I'm going to follow that. My teachers told me this, so I'm going to take their word for it. That would be taking it as the word of a man. And then they get to college and they hear the word of the professor and they say, well, this sounds so much better. I'm going to go with that word of a man. So that's the difference between taking God's word and preaching and teaching from God's word as God's word and having it be effective, having it work effectually, as it mentions in verse 13, and just having the words of a man. Because the words of a man can be replaced by the words of another man. And not just by the words of another man, but when you face physical persecution, beating and death because the persecution that Thessalonians faced was of that type and quality because we see Paul compare it to the sufferings and persecution that was in Judea 
Think of Paul himself was a part of that. He was involved in Christians being thrown into prison and beaten for the cause of Christ, for being believers, for putting their faith in the gospel. And he was so fervent in his zeal for, that, for working that persecution that he traveled to Damascus to continue that. And on the road to Damascus, God appeared to him and spoke to him and his life would go on to be changed to the point where he would be suffering persecution rather than being the perpetrator of such persecution. So Paul had lived on both sides of that persecution, and he himself knew by his experience the difference between taking the word of God as God's word and the word of a man because he was willing to suffer personally. And he's thanking God for the faithfulness of the Thessalonian church. Here in verse 13, he's thanking God for how God's word has been so effective in their lives that they're willing to endure the kind of persecution that he had previously been a perpetrator of in Judea and that the churches in Judea had suffered physical beating, physical um, imprisonment, and even death. You don't willingly suffer those things for a cause you don't believe in. If somebody comes to your door and, and your choice is to recant what you believe, to change what you believe based on what you have, the words you have received, to turn away from that or to suffer physical imprisonment, imprisonment, physical beating or torture or even death. You're not going to be willingly suffering those physical persecutions for something you don't truly believe, that you have not received as the word of God rather than just the word of a man. If somebody has received it because, because of the words of man, because a friend of his said this to him and he's received it as, well, my friend says this, so I'm going to believe this. Or my parents said this, so I'm going to believe this. My pastor said this, I'm going to believe this. My teacher said this, I'm going to believe this. If they're taking it as the words of a man, then they're willing to change that when that physical persecution comes. They're not going to say, okay, I'm going to suffer this physical beating, this imprisonment, this death. I'm going to suffer this because it's good enough for, what, for my friend and my pastor and my parents. It's what they believe, so it's good enough for me. You know, they're going to be willingly suffering that persecution only if they believe it for themselves because they're convinced by God that this is the truth and it's worth dying for. And so Paul is thanking God for how they had received God's word, the preaching of the gospel as the word of God and not just the words of a man. And this is something that we need today, that too often young people take on uh, a profession of faith that's based on what their parents believe. They're, they're Christians because they were raised to be Christians. And it hasn't become personal to them as the word of God. And we need to be careful when we're... When we're uh, presenting the gospel to children and we're presenting the word of God and the teachings of the word of God to children that we're not presenting these as just the stories or our personal opinions but this is the words of God and let, teaching them who God is my wife and I were having a conversation earlier this week where my wife mentioned to me just remember my wife she was saved when she was about 21 and there's just an incredible difference between the life experience of someone who's saved at 21 and someone like me who's saved about age four and uh, grows in, in my understanding from that point, but really always have looked back to that point as I believe at that moment and never did not believe and have put my faith in, in Christ and endeavored to follow him 
since that point, but have always come to a greater understanding since then. But for my wife, Jackie, having been give, given the gospel as a teenager, but not understanding it, and for her, she heard the gospel and was presented with the choice, well, do, will, you, will you pray this prayer to be saved? And wanting to please the person telling her that, she said yes. He was asked, do you understand this? And she didn't want to admit that, no, I don't get it. But she really didn't get it. She really didn't understand. She told me this. But she didn't want to tell that person that at the time. She didn't want to disappoint them. She didn't want to be thought of as, oh, why don't you understand this? She wanted to fit in. And so she prayed the prayer, but she didn't really understand it. Didn't really believe it for herself as the word of God. She was just taking it as the words of a man at that point. But later in her life, through series of events and personal struggles and personal relationships with people who were believers and being presented with the truth of the gospel and coming to put her faith in God and the word of God and the gospel as from God and not from her friends, not for the sake of her friends, but for herself and for God, that's when she finally came to a place where she knew without a doubt she had put her faith in Jesus Christ for her salvation and what a difference it made in her life. And so that is what we need. And in one of those conversations I had with my wife this week, she mentioned the fact that it can be damaging to children, even with some of the Bible stories being taught the way they are with, for example, the story of Noah and the ark just being pictured as a fairy tale by some of the pictures that are that are used to illustrate that true event that really happened. And so even when I am teaching uh, each, each week in class at uh, the school, the Christian school where I teach, I appreciate the fact I get to start each day and end each day with teaching the Bible. I start each day teaching 100 minutes to 9th through 12th graders of Bible. We look at a lot of Bible passages, a lot of scripture, and a lot of application and points, have some, get some in-depth, really try to make them think on a higher level about God's word and the teachings and Christian doctrines in those passages. And then I end each day with a sixth grade class of only 11 students for, usually it's 40 minutes, uh, once a week it's 60 minutes based on their elective schedule. And to begin and end each day with teaching the Bible, is, it, I really enjoy that. And then right in the middle of the day, I get to teach history to all the grades, uh, different, different segments at different times of the day. And in history class, with world history, we begin, because we're using a Christian curriculum in a Christian school, we begin with creation. That's the beginning of human history. And then we teach the flood as an actual event. And it's interesting to see the response of some of the kids who have our recent transfers from public schools and see the looks on their faces sometimes when we're teaching this as this is not just a story, this is history. And then you're gonna be tested and quizzed over this and, we're, and I'm giving hard fact dates for when things happen for, and we're talking about genealogies and we're talking about li events from the Bible as literal historical events. And just to see the look on some of the faces who are transfers from public schools as Wait a minute, the flood is a real event? The flood really happened? The flood is a historical event and we can put a date on it? And we can prove that by certain things? Wait a minute, this is different than what I've heard before. Just to notice that. And that type of teaching is what is really needed today that to 
show our young people that the Word of God, that the things we believe as Christians are not just philosophies of men, but the Word of God, and that they're truth. Whereas some of the things that are being advanced in the public schools today and in the secular media are not the truth. And it's such a battle that, that we have in America. And preparing for this message, some of the commentators had to say things like, I really don't think it's going to happen in America. I don't think we can have revival unless we have persecution. I hope that's not the case. But the, the, a lot of Christian leaders out there are convinced that unless we get persecution in this country, we're never really going to get back to the point where we really believe the word of God is the word of God and not just the teachings of men. I hope that is not the case. But for the Thessalonians, there's no doubt because of the persecution they're experiencing. So the first point that we've looked at here, and I'll need to move faster now for our second and third point, is to thank God for the suffering that comes, for the following of God that is involved and evidenced by that suffering. The testimony that the Thessalonian church has because they're willing to suffer for Christ, it is worth thanking God for, even though we would prefer not to suffer physically persecution for the cause of Christ. The Thessalonians are an example and a testimony, a witness of the difference it makes when we take the word of God and apply it to our lives as God's word, not man's word, and how we're willing to suffer for it. And that's an encouraging factor. And Paul commends the Thessalonians for, and he's thanking God for them. And that's a new perspective, I, I would think, for the Thessalonians to think, wait a minute, the suffering we're enduring is something God is using for good and something we can thank God for. That's encouraging. And the second point we see is the nature of our persecutors. We see this in verse 15, verses 15 and 16. So Paul asks his readers to understand the nature of our persecutors in verses 15 and 16. Speaking of such persecutors, Paul writes, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always for the wrath that has come upon them to the uttermost. He's speaking here specifically of, specifically of the Jews. But notice the first point in 15a is that our persecutors are causing us to suffer. The persecutors of the Thessalonian church here are causing them to suffer like they caused Jesus to suffer. Jesus suffered persecution. And he was perfect. He was the son of God. And yet he was rejected and even killed. And he told, he promised his disciples that if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so what a great privilege it is to have that in common with Christ. That like Jesus suffered, we are also suffering. We are in good company if we suffer persecution for Christ. Not that we should seek in any way to be persecuted or go out of our way to find persecution or that each of us are called to go to a Muslim nation and possibly be martyred for Christ. That is not what we're being taught here, but that when persecution does come in whatever form it comes, and even to some extent we do have some of that today in America. It's not to the extent where we are physically beaten and usually not in prison. There is that danger still today, 
and that danger that's becoming stronger and certainly not put to death for the name of Christ in our country, but in other countries of the world that does happen. But in our country, you know, a teacher in the public schools can lose their job, lose that means of livelihood if they witness. Um, one of my, uh, not this year, but last couple of years I was a teacher, one of the parents of one of my students was a teacher in the public school, but she had her daughter, two daughters, in the Christian school because she knew, you know, the value of having a Christian education for her children, even though she was a teacher in the public school herself. And she testified of the paper that she had to sign. She had a co-worker, you know, an intern teacher, an assistant working under her in the public school, and she wanted to give her the gospel, but she had to be very careful because at any point, if she became accusable of giving, of witnessing to her coworker or the person assistant, she would lose her job. She had to sign a paper saying she wouldn't do that, that she would not give the gospel or proselytize. And I know that there's some windows of opportunity for public schoolers, teachers to be witnesses. Even my wife has test, uh, testified to, to me of the difference that some teachers made that she knew were Christians that were never allowed to actually say that to her, but she knew they were involved in before or after school Bible studies and prayer, but she wasn't personally able to go to those. And she knew by the way she was treated by those teachers that they were Christians. She, she could see the difference. She just couldn't be told clearly the gospel by them in school. If, if they had, they would have been persecuted for that. I believe a movie, I think if my wife has watched it, I've been meaning to, just haven't found the time in the last month, has been made dealing with that very issue of persecution in the public schools of teachers who would give the gospel. And so there is some persecution, and we could go on and list others, but for sake of time, we won't continue. I'm sure you're aware of the growing potential for persecution and some degree of persecution we have to suffer. Most, mostly, though, it's more, the most we would suffer would be a fine or, or loss of a job, loss of uh, finances for the gospel. And if, you know, if you're going door to door witnessing or person to person, usually it's just the persecution of that person speaking unkindly to you. Usually our lives are not in danger, but it can be even in this country. Someone could, could get overly upset. So, someone who is from a different religion that believes in violence could uh, endanger our lives for our testimony, for our work for Christ. But here the Thessalonians were definitely suffering such persecution. Paul reminds them that Christ also suffered persecution. Notice another point here in verse 14. Uh, the tr other churches in Judea had suffered such persecution. I mentioned that earlier. Paul had been involved in persecuting himself, the churches in Judea, and Paul has reminded them, you're in good company. You are, you are being faithful. You are following the good example of those churches in Judea who have also suffered for Christ. For ye brethren, and notice a couple of weeks, I know it's been a couple of weeks, but a couple of weeks ago, I, we looked at the fact, I mentioned the fact that Paul identifies himself with the Thessalonian church as they are part of his family, his spiritual family. He mentions uh, his motherly instincts for them, that he cares about them like a mother cares for her young. And he also mentioned to them aspects of being a father, being a spiritual father to them. Now he calls them his brethren in verse 14. For ye brethren became followers of the church of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye 
also have suffered the things of your own countrymen, even they as they have of the Jews. And notice in verse 15, the Jews, and you see this in Acts 18 where you see the persecution of the Thessalonian church recorded, the Jews were the ones who stirred up the Thessalonians' countrymen to begin that persecution, and then those Gentiles carried out the persecution, and those Jew, the Jews had been the ones who had killed Jesus and their own prophets and persecuted the Christian church. And Paul is not condoning any anti-Semitism, but he does Note in verse 15, who hath both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon you, uh, come upon them to the uttermost. In other words, God is one of the aspects of a persecutor we should understand and be encouraged by, not because we want them to get the punishment they're going to deserve, but we do not need to be overly distressed about the persecution because first, we're suffering like Christ suffered. We're suffering like many other Christians have suffered. We're following the good example and being faithful when we endure persecution, but also knowing that it's ultimately God that persecutors are fighting against, and they're ultimately fighting for Satan. They're fighting against God, and we shouldn't take the persecution personally. It's against God, and God ultimately will deal with that if they do not repent, if they do not turn from it like Paul personally did, then their wrath has come upon them to the uttermost, it says in verse 16. Their sins are always to fill up their sins always. Uh, some commentators believe this is referring to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD that came upon the Jews, that that could have been part of the punishment, the wrath of God that was being filled up by the persecution of the Jews that the Jews were perpetrating against the Christians, and that ultimately they were punished for that, at least in part, through the destruction of Jerusalem. Perhaps that is related in some of the sufferings that the Jews have endured throughout history. Not that any of that suffering is justified, whether by Hitler or anyone else, but that God has allowed some of these terrible things that happened to the Jews to happen, partly because they rejected Jesus as Messiah, and then furthermore, they persecuted his church. And we're very zealous in such persecution. And they're fighting against God. And, in, and God takes it very seriously. A cross-reference that we don't have time to go to is the, the, where Jesus speaks of, it's better for a person that a millstone be hung around his neck and drowned in the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. And in the context of these little ones, we see that Jesus is referring to it's a very serious crime to try to prevent the gospel being preached in such a way that you're preventing someone else from going to heaven because they don't get to hear the message of the gospel preached. Paul um, is mentioning again, God takes that very seriously in verse 16. So we can be encouraged that God is ultimately going to intervene and he's going to punish those who persecute those who try to prevent another person from getting saved and which is why we need to pray for our country and our government that we that our country and government not put itself in that position and i believe the blessing of god the, the blessings some of the freedoms the prosperity some of that that we enjoy today are partly a result to the freedoms that we've enjoyed religious freedom that's unique especially to this country as opposed to the level of free, religious freedom that the world has experienced up until 
the birth of this country and even today. And yet, uh, and God holds those who restrict that freedom to preach the gospel accountable for that. So we need to be in prayer, and even with these elections coming up this fall, that our government will not persecute Christians. Pray for those who are in authority that we may live a quiet and peaceable life, Paul says in another passage in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, or chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, that is. And then the last point, and I... I'll need to draw this conclusion quickly here, is that we are not to be discouraged by the absence of loved ones in Christ in verses 17 through 20. For we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we have gone unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. So Paul is telling them, don't be discouraged because I am not able to be with you. I am with you in heart. I am with you in spirit. I would love to be with you. And Paul later is able to revisit the Thessalonians. He's not sure that he will. And you see the fact mentioned in verse 19 that even if they never physically see each other again, they will see each other. Should I, let me back up. Even if they do not physically see themselves again before Christ's return or before the resurrection, before they get to heaven, they will meet again one day in heaven and at the resurrection physically when Jesus will return. And we have that to look forward to and to be encouraged by. So Paul assures them of his great love for them, his great care for them, that he wanted to visit them. But notice Satan is the one that hinders that in verse 18. Satan hindered us. And that word for Satan means the adversary. He's the enemy. He's trying to use circumstances and events and other people and persecution to discourage the Thessalonian church. And Paul is letting them know, I am with you in spirit. I'm with you in heart. I want to be there. I want to visit you. And this is to be an encouragement to the Thessalonians. In verse 19, to end with this, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? That word for coming at the end of verse 19, this is the first time that the word in the original language for coming used as used here in, in this verse is used in the New Testament. The first time it's used in the New Testament and it is used a total of 18 times, and it becomes a word. In the original Greek, it was a word that was often used for the coming of royalty, for royalty coming into a town. That was the context. So this is what they would have understood by knowing the original language. And it's a word that becomes used in the New Testament in these 18 times it is used as a technical term to refer to Jesus' return, to his second coming, to the coming of Christ again to this earth and looking forward to that event. It's going to be used seven times out of those 18 times in First and Second Thessalonians, so we will see it again. And we have that second coming of Christ. We have the return of Christ to look forward to even today. And it's an element of encouragement 
for the Thessalonian church. And notice in verse 20, for ye are our glory and our joy. The growth of the church in Thessalonica is what Paul is being encouraged by despite the persecution. It is very encouraging that they are our church that is being faithful and growing for Christ and willing to suffer persecution. Remember, a car cannot travel very far without fuel, without getting refueled. Eventually, you have to stop and get gas. People are similar in that they need encouragement. Paul is providing encouragement in this passage for a church that is going through persecution. Let us remember to, to be encouraged should we ever encounter persecution. Remember to come back to this passage if you know people, missionaries, believers in this country that in any way experience persecution, let's remember them in prayer and be an encouragement to them the way Paul was encouragement to the Thessalonians here in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 20, where we've seen these three points of encouragement given by Paul to the Thessalonians. The first point of thanking God for the suffering that comes to us for following Christ and receiving his word as God's word, not man's. And second, understanding the nature of our persecutors and how they are fighting against God. And like Christ was persecuted, we are being persecuted. We're in good company and we're being faithful as other Christians who have suffered Christ are being faithful in their sufferings, in their persecution. And then third, finally, to remember that no matter how alone we may feel when we're going through a trial, a persecution, a suffering, even if it, perhaps it's not a personal persecution, Perhaps it's brought, in, brought on by Satan as Satan hindered Paul from going to visit the Thessalonians. Perhaps that wasn't even through direct persecution by people, but by events, by sufferings. And sometimes Satan will try to hinder us and try to discourage us or, or try to discourage us by hindering other people from being physically present with us. But remember that God, that Jesus, is always with us and we are never alone, and we are in good company. When we are being persecuted, when we are suffering for Christ, there are so many who have also suffered, and so let's be faithful in that. Remember that we are never alone, even when Satan hinders others from being with us, or when we experience persecution and feel like we're going through that alone. So whenever Satan tries to use situations in our life to worry us, to discourage us, Let's remember that the reason is because we're a follower of Christ. And any time that we experience extra suffering in this life, because Satan is trying to discourage us for being a follower of Christ, to discourage us from continuing to follow Christ, let's be faithful, let's be encouraged. And hopefully this passage is, is one that can remind us of how to do so. And let us try to be like Paul was for the Thessalonians, be an encouragement to others who need that encouragement that Satan is, is hindering in some way or, or people are persecuting in some way to bring discouragement, to bring concern, to bring worry. Let's be an encouragement to those like Paul was to the Thessalonians. Let's pray and close in our closing hymn.